You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LEFC. This is week nine, covering Matthew chapters 24 through 25. Good morning. What a joy it is to be gathered around God's word today. So today we're tackling Matthew 24 and 25, this notorious end times passage, where I'm going to answer all of your questions and send you out the door with a detailed timeline of events. (laughs) Don't you wish that it was so? I do. I knew chapter 24 couldn't be fit onto a timeline, and I still couldn't help myself. Like I got out my pencil, my scripture journal, I was like, okay, we're going to plot these points. Regardless of your personality, you obviously see a little bit of mine, we all have this tension within ourselves that we don't like not knowing, right? There's a sense of a lack of control. I think that's what it really comes down to. But the reality is, there is a ton of knowledge in all aspects of life that we will never obtain. And when that comes to the things of God, that brings me to my knees in a good way. God has graciously revealed himself, the way of salvation, and all that is required for life and godliness, but there is still secret knowledge that belongs to him. And we are created to be finite and limited, but that's not a bad thing. We're actually designed to flourish in that humble state before our creator. So let those unknowns drive you to worship instead of to fear or doubt. You can rest in his good sovereignty. You don't have to be in control, okay? I feel like we just needed a pep talk before we started that. Okay, you ready? So how many of you were here for the sermon series last fall on these two chapters, or most of it? Okay, so a smattering, about half of you. Hopefully that gave you some good framework for this passage, but honestly, the whole time we were going through it, I was like, I can't wait for you all to come back to those chapters in the context of the book of Matthew, and we can study them together. I have been looking forward to this. So even though I just said there's a lot that we can't know for sure, there is an entire branch of theology called eschatology, if my clicker will work, there it is. And it simply means the study of the last things. So if this interests you, by all means, dig deeper. There's a ton of stuff out there. But as with any pursuit of theological learning, may it lead you to love and treasure Christ all the more. Knowledge without love only puffs up. But our theology or study of God must lead to doxology to our praise and glorification of God. So that's our goal today, to glory in the promises of our coming King, of his eternal kingdom where all will be made right, and the hope that informs our doxology in the here and now. So our text for today contains Jesus' fifth and final discourse or teaching. And it takes place on the Mount of Olives and so has been named the Olivet Discourse. And remember, this is Jesus' last recorded teaching in the book of Matthew before he goes to the cross. And who's he talking to in verse three? It's his disciples. These are his closest friends and followers. So remember that context. 
Why these final words about the future before his death? So at the close of chapter 23, Jesus is looking back over the city of Jerusalem and is just grieved by her unrepentance. And as they leave the temple, the disciples are exclaiming over the grandeur of the structure. And it was truly magnificent. Here's a little pop quiz for you. So the first temple was built by King who? Solomon, right, in the Old Testament. And it was glorious in its own right. Um, it was more of a permanent and, and a better tabernacle. And so God's presence dwelt there in the most holy place. But then that temple that Solomon built was destroyed at the time of the exile by which enemy nation? Babylon, okay? Babylon came and took over the southern kingdom and the capital city of Jerusalem. So that temple was then rebuilt by those who returned from exile, but it was never as glorious as the first. But then Herod the Great came along and he had a massive remodel project and refurbished this temple into the grand structure that it was at Jesus' time. So this is um, the temple of Jesus' time. For the Jew, the temple was the epicenter of their spiritual life. It signified the meeting place between God and man. And so when Jesus says that this temple is gonna be destroyed, it brings back the terrible memory of their exile. This is the lowest point in their history so far. But what they don't yet understand is that the era of even needing a physical temple is about to come to an end because Jesus Christ is in himself the meeting place between God and man. And he's going to build a new dwelling place for God in the church with himself as the cornerstone. Now, before we continue in the text, we need some important background information. Do you see the little heading that's been added above verse three? It says, signs of the end of the age. And if we're gonna make any sense of the details in this chapter, we first need to understand the ages of the gospel story. So I have a visual for you here. It's the same one that's on your tables. I just had to use a timeline somewhere. We gotta, we gotta get one in somewhere. But this is one we should all be able to agree on, okay? So you might need to stare at it a while. That's why I gave you copies, you can take it home. But the black line in the center is the timeline of history. So that's from creation all the way into eternity. And then the only two points on there are the only two that we need for this conversation. The first and second comings of Christ, because that is what marks and establishes these ages. The red line of this age technically would have started like at the fall of man and has been going the whole time and will persist, you see, until the second coming of Christ. Creation is held in bondage to sin and death as a result of our rebellion. And then the blue line is the age to come. Now Jesus inaugurated this kingdom age with his coming, his work of redemption, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, kingdom fulfillment has begun. So the overlap of these ages is what we call the already but not yet kingdom. This present age ends with Jesus' second coming and that's when the kingdom will be completely restored under the uncontested rule of Christ. Does that make sense? As I know that's a real quick version. So when you see 
the word age in the Bible or days, like it'll say latter days. This is the framework that it's referring to. The New Testament writers clearly indicate that the time period we're in now, this already but not yet, they call it the last days. You'll see it over and over again. So are we in the end times, the last days? We are, and we have been since Christ's first coming. That is how the Bible speaks of it. And so we would do well to align our language to scripture. Now, Jesus' comments about the temple prompt some questions from the disciples in verse three. They say, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Now realize they are thinking in very concrete segments like this. So they are thinking the age, this age, and the age to come, or the age of promise and the age of fulfillment. So if the Messiah is here at the midpoint, then they are on the brink of kingdom fulfillment. That's kind of where their brains have been this whole time. They don't have a category for what is about to happen with the overlap of the ages. All right, I'm gonna put the correct one back up here. This confusion persists until they receive the Holy Spirit. And it's then that they understand all that Jesus accomplished and what their mission is to be for this present age. Jesus answers their questions, maybe not in the way they hoped, but with two exhortations found in verses four and six. See that no one leads you astray and see that you are not alarmed. And rightfully so, Jesus is warning them of wars, rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes. These are characteristics of this present age that we find ourselves in, but they are the beginning of birth pains. Now I'm talking to a room full of women. So many of you have either given birth yourself or have heard the stories of those who have. So you know how this works. The pain gets worse before it gets better. And likewise, there is a mounting intensity to the difficulty. Hatred, persecution, death, betrayal, false prophets, deception. In verse 12, it says the love of many will grow cold because of the rampant lawlessness. But notice what else is happening simultaneously in verse 14 as society degrades. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. Listen to me. What I'm about to say seems opposite of what you can see with your eyes. But the kingdom of heaven is on a positive trajectory that continues into eternity. The kingdom of this world is on a negative trajectory leading to death and destruction in the wrath of God. He will put a stop to this rebellion against his good rule and reign. And so I ask you, which path are you on? The narrow road that leads to life or the broad road that leads to death? The path you choose determines your destination, but it also determines how you navigate the birth pains of this age. Verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And don't think for a minute that this is just about buckling down and white knuckling your way through. If you are in Christ, you are a part of the kingdom of the age to come that has invaded the here and now. 
you have a foretaste of deliverance, the very presence of God with you, the ability to know and enjoy God, the renewal of the spirit. All of this is happening while we simultaneously groan with these pains of childbirth, waiting for the final redemption. This is the paradox of the already but not yet kingdom. And what's the result of all this laboring? It's new life. Jesus tells his disciples in John 16, just as a mother forgets the pain of childbirth for the joy that she finds, so the sorrows of this age will be swallowed up in the joy that is to come. Any grief or trial or persecution that you endure in this age is pain with a purpose if it's submitted to the Lordship of Christ and it is moving you forward in this process of being made whole. Do not be led astray. Do not be alarmed. Next, Jesus gives instructions regarding the abomination of desolation that the prophet Daniel wrote about. So in this context, an abomination is intense hatred or defilement of the sacred. And this is referring to a particular event, event which we referenced in the workbook. So we need a little historical context. Also, Pastor Joel preached an excellent sermon about this on October 16th of last year. So if you're like, I want all the details, go back and listen to that sermon, okay? I'm just gonna give you the cliff notes today. So in the 400 years between the Old and the New Testament, an event occurred that seemed to fulfill Daniel's prophecies. And we get this info from other historians. It's obviously not in our Bible. A Greek Hellenistic king named Antiochus Epiphanes persecuted the Jews terribly, killing many of them, forbidding their worship of Yahweh. And he went so far as to set up idols to a pagan god in the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar and smeared its blood around. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament law, you know that that is completely disrespectful of God and of the Jewish people. The Jews rebelled against him. This is called the Maccabean revolt. And it ushered in a time for them of independent self-rule. And the reason this matters is because this is what the disciples would think of when they hear, oh, Daniel's prophecy. The last time this happened, it was a terrible thing, but it ended up being like a positive turning point for the Jews. So back to Matthew 24, they're under Roman oppression now. So when Jesus says, hey, there's gonna be another fulfillment of this prophecy, their first thought is independence. But this time Jesus tells them to flee, not to fight. It's because this is a new kind of kingdom. This is not one that is advanced by the sword. What the disciples didn't know at the time is that this prophecy would again be fulfilled in 70 AD. The temple would be desecrated and destroyed by the Romans in the siege of Jerusalem. And the Christians who followed Jesus' instructions, they fled the city and they were spared. So we've seen these dual fulfillments of the abomination of desolation. And I don't know about you, but I kind of wonder, okay, so is there more to come? And scholars have different opinions on that. In fact, there are many different opinions about this entire chapter. So if you find this difficult to interpret, you are in good company with pretty much everyone. Um, there are two main things in view. 
all right? There is the destruction of the temple, and then there is the second coming of Christ and the end of the age. So what scholars are doing as they try to interpret is they're trying to distinguish, okay, so which parts of Matthew 24 go with which event? Does that make sense? Now, I'm not saying we can't know anything. The previous fulfillments of the abomination are pretty clear, but I am saying this is prophecy. We must tread humbly. It is incredibly hard to know if the prophecy is near or if it's far off if it's a one-time fulfillment, or if it's layered in multiple fulfillments. The way that I personally see this chapter is that Jesus is referring to both events, but I don't feel the need to pin down every verse or section to one or the other. And that's not just because I want the easy way out. It's because I really do see and believe there are a lot of similarities between these two events, some literal, some figurative. And so I think if we focus on those similarities, then we can extract the principles that Jesus is trying to communicate. So I'm gonna teach that chapter, this chapter accordingly. Again, there's a ton of commentary out there if you wanna learn more. My main concern today is that we just handle the text well and that we see how Jesus intended it to shape our lives. Pastor Alistair Begg says, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. It's a good guiding principle for us today. People get all wound around um, interpreting the signs of the times. And I hope you'll hear today, as you heard in the sermon series, that there are much more important things to be doing than reading conspiracy theories and building a bunker. And I say that in love. <laughs> But scripture is clear about what we have to look forward to and how to live in these last days. Does our theology lead to doxology, a mouth and a life glorifying to God? Like I said, we know it's gonna get worse before it gets better. There was tribulation surrounding those events. There's gonna be tribulation intensifying and trials as we get closer to the end of the age. Yet think back on all the times in history when it seemed like the world was coming to an end and it didn't. So I'm not saying that we should be dismissive, but I am saying we should heed the words of Jesus. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. And his other exhortation, do not be led astray. And that really is the tone of the following verses in 21 through 28. False prophets, false messiahs appeared back then and are continuing to appear now with convincing messages, even with signs. Do not believe them. Remember your best defense against deception is to be well acquainted with the truth. The enemy's goal in deceiving you is ultimately to render you ineffective in the kingdom of God. When I read in verse 26 about following all these claims of false messiahs, it just sounds like distraction. You don't need to chase all those things. You will not miss the coming of the Lord. In verse 27, it says, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the son of man. Continuing on in verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. 
This may mean literally, this may mean figuratively of the powers and kingdoms of this world that will fall. The language very closely mirrors Isaiah and Ezekiel and John in Revelation. And again, scholars have different interpretations of this, but what I want you to see is the theme of decreation. There is an undoing of what was to make room for what's to come. Hold on to that thought. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This wording is so similar to Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming on the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. There will be no question who this is when Christ returns in glory. Every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But not everyone will be glad to see him. Those who oppose him in this life will mourn and wail when they're confronted with the reality of their unbelief. Have you ever seen a child repent after they've been issued a consequence? So they may have been warned several times, but there's something about receiving that consequence that then prompts the confession of, oh no, I didn't mean it, I'm sorry, I won't do it again. But it's too late. And likewise, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Blessed are those who mourn now, for they will be comforted. Today is the day of salvation, sisters, for when he returns, it will be too late. And so I ask you again, are you in? Just as the buds on the trees signal that spring is coming, so when you see these things, know that his coming is near. In verse 34, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Verse 34 has caused a good deal of trouble for interpreters over the years. Um, Keep in mind though, the layered fulfillment of this chapter. So Jesus' words are weaving in and out of, of the temple destruction, and his second coming. So if he's referencing the events of 70 AD, they will indeed take place in that generation. If he's talking about his second coming, then he most likely means the generations of this age will see the fulfillment at the end. And he goes on to say that no one knows the day or the hour of his return, not even him, but only the Father. Remember, he did not give up his deity in coming to earth, but he chose to live within human limits. So we understand that to mean that he did not operate in his omniscience of knowing all things that he would possess as the son of God. And Jesus compares his second coming to the days of Noah leading up to the flood. And there are some striking parallels here. Essentially the flood is a decreation narrative, both literally and figuratively. 
God is purging the world in judgment, undoing what was to make room for what's to come. Just like the signs were given in this chapter, Noah was warned and he prepared accordingly. He believed in faith and it prompted him to act. The ark was like the refuge of Christ, delivering him through the waters of God's wrath. And everyone else persisted in unbelief and wickedness. And so for them, the flood seemed to come quite suddenly and they perished. Out of these parallels, Jesus points out blatant unbelief and the seeming suddenness of judgment. And so he says in verse 42, therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. And in verse 44, therefore you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. So what does it mean to stay awake? And what does it mean to be ready? We're gonna let the text answer those questions. Jesus begins with a short parable of two servants. Both were given responsibility to provide for those in their care. And what are the descriptors of the first servant? Faithful and wise, right? And did you spot the beatitude in verse 46? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. In fact, he will receive eternal reward. In contrast, the wicked servant abuses his authority. Instead of providing for those in the household, he mistreats them and lives a life of hypocrisy. Woe to the servant whose master finds him so doing when he returns. So both claim to be servants of the master, right? but only one is living in allegiance to him at a heart level and the fruit of their deeds reveals their inner state. So narrowly, this can be seen as a contrast between um, the Pharisees and the disciples. Widely, this can apply to any of us who bear the name of Christ. We have the truth of the gospel. We each have areas of influence. So let us be found to be faithful and wise for this truly is what it means to stay awake and be ready. Jesus then elaborates on this analogy with three more parables in chapter 25. And the first two are complementary, and the third brings culmination to his message. Remember, parables reveal a simple truth. So we wanna avoid getting down in the weeds. Plain things are the main things, plain things are the main things. Did I say that right? So as we come to these parables, these first two, uh, I see these similarities in both of them. So there is an expectation of return. There is an unspecified time of leave. Contrasting behavior by those who are waiting. Consequences, both good and bad upon return. And then of course, each one has a Christ figure, the bridegroom in the first and the master in the second. Jesus is explaining that he will leave this earth but promises to return and he doesn't reveal how much time will pass until that day. In fact, I think the disciples expected to see him again in their lifetime. But remember the words of Peter, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And so we are left in this undisclosed amount of waiting, knowing that he could return 
at any moment. So what are we to learn from these parables about how to conduct ourselves so as to be found faithful and wise? If you'll notice the parable of the virgins specifically highlights wisdom. The wise virgins are prepared for the bridegroom's return. The foolish ones are not. That preparedness cannot be shared, can't be transferred, and it is necessary to gain entrance into the wedding feast. Those who were prepared went in to the feast and the door was shut behind them. Those who were not were left outside and they were not allowed in no matter how they knocked or pleaded. Jesus says in verse 13, watch therefore, for you do not know the day or the hour. We are not only to expect his arrival, but to anticipate it. The one who is wise will receive the reward of his presence. Wisdom is expectant preparedness. The parable of the talents then primarily focuses on faithfulness. So here we have faithful and wise. The master entrusts his servants with valuable assets before leaving. You know how the story goes. The first two invest it, use it, gain a return, and are given greater reward when he comes back. But the last one hoards and buries the money and is condemned by the master. And so we could conclude faithfulness is diligent service. Now, I think it can be very easy to take fractional application from these parables. And what I mean by that is if you read this and you think, okay, I better get busy. Like, what am I supposed to be doing? Somebody just tell me what I'm supposed to be doing because I don't want to get in trouble like when dad gets home. <laughs> that is not the attitude we are to have. We have the privilege of living on this side of the cross. So what I want to do is just layer some gospel truth over these parables. Consider the virgins. They're not bustling around. They're waiting and they're watching. And they're counted wise for being prepared. Sisters, the ultimate readiness, the ultimate preparedness is to be found in Christ. It's his righteousness alone that grants us access into the wedding feast. And you don't contribute to that. This is not transferable from the family that you grew up in. It is not transferable from your church or your friends or your spouse. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You could be doing all the right things like the Pharisees, but if you are not joined to Christ in faith, then you are not prepared for his coming. And conversely, if he is your savior and Lord, your life is hidden with Christ in God and there is no place more secure for your soul. In the complimenting parable of the talents, we learn that coming to saving faith in Christ doesn't mean that we just sit around and wait. Instead, we live out allegiance to King Jesus out of a renewed heart. If you are his, you are no longer your own. You have come in under his good rule and reign. You've been given a new identity and purpose for life. You have the truth of the gospel for a lost and dying world. You have unique giftings. You are empowered by the spirit. So let us serve our king in joyful obedience. Let us be found faithful. The final parable of this chapter is a picture of judgment day. 
The Messiah, who first came as the suffering servant, will return as the victorious king to judge the inhabitants of the earth. And each one is judged. And then either condemned or rewarded, seemingly according to his deeds, right? But don't think for a minute that this is just about behavior. What has Jesus been teaching his entire ministry? It is not the outer works of righteousness that save you, but the inner righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus Christ. These deeds are an outworking of a heart that is submitted to King Jesus. What's most sobering to me in these parables is that everybody thinks they're getting in. Did you notice that? But only some do. This is one of the most grievous realities that there are those who think they're good with God because of church attendance or moral behavior. I mean, you name it. And they might actually be surprised when standing at the judgment seat of Christ. May it not be so on our watch. May our mouth and our lives be so filled with the gospel that those we come in contact with are without excuse. So why did Jesus leave his disciples with these final words about the future? I think it was because he loved them. He was about to die and that would leave them incredibly bewildered. He also knew that they were going to lose everything for his sake in the years to come. And so what does he offer them? Hope, joy, and what joy it is that he set before them. Press on, endure. There is no trial that compares to the glory of what's to come. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. On the other side of his glorious return is the consummation of all things. A world remade, the uncontested rule of Christ, the end of sin and death. And we will be with him. Finally, face to face, made whole in his presence the way we were created to be. He will return to set all things right. What you see around you is not the end of the story. Does this reality shape your days? because I know it can seem awful far off on a normal Thursday. But all of your longings for wholeness and purpose are pointing you towards Christ and his kingdom. We know where we've come from. We know what God has done through us in Christ. We know what our purpose is for the here and now. And we know where we're headed. My daily reality was so drastically affected when I understood how my life connects up into God's greater story. And it's the best I have to offer you that this truth of the gospel has called you to belong to something, to someone far greater than yourself. The theology of all that's to come is meant to inform and infuse our doxology of today, 
our praise, our lives. Just as with his disciples, Jesus didn't leave us in aimless ignorance. The vision of this future glory is unshakable hope. It fuels our devotion to King Jesus while we wait and we watch and we work. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Christ, how we long to see the day. We groan in the pains of childbirth, but what unshakable hope you have given us that we know where we're headed. And you have given us your spirit as a deposit guaranteeing this inheritance. You have not left us alone. Father, may the the story of what you're doing in the world shape our daily lives. Spirit, would you just reveal to each one what it looks like to be faithful, to be wise? How do we live for you? How do we love you with our whole being? God, we long that our lives would make much of you that we would go to the grave with the truth of this gospel on our lips and a commitment to you and your kingdom. Father, give us endurance while we wait. Fix our eyes on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. We love you and we praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.